Remain standing as we turn to Ephesians chapter 6, back to our text that is now part 2, uh, as we address fathers, appropriately so, on this occasion that we celebrate and honor our fathers on Father's Day. Though it wasn't planned that way, it happens to fall providentially and gloriously on that day, and so we now turn our attention to a very significant part of the vision of heritage and of Christ's church, a vision for fathers as covenant heads of their households. Ephesians 6 verse 4 says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we take a survey and we look across our own congregation and how you have blessed families here with fathers, there are many fathers among us here today, and we are thankful for godly fathers, for even of our own sons who will become those godly fathers. We are grateful for your work of grace for the covenant promises given to us and to our children. And we pray that the Spirit would fall upon the preaching of your message now and upon your messenger and fill this place with your presence, that we might hear the oracles of God, our Father, speaking to us in our hearts, training our conscience, speaking to our minds, renewing our entirety of our being, Lord, we ask that you would protect us from the evil one who would seek to destroy this time of listening and fortitude, a time of growing and character, a time of discipline of our minds and of our hearts, a time of training us up in righteousness. We pray that you would drive away from us all the oppression of the enemy, all those thoughts that would rise up against, um, against Christ and His desires for us at this time. The distractions that would lead us away from the truth. We pray that Your Spirit would take command of our time, of our minds, and of our hearts here this day. Take command of our spirits. that We would be focused upon You. And as our psalm even of this morning read, our heart is fixed, O God. Our heart is fixed upon You. So may it be in this hour we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last Lord's Day, we looked at this verse and then we began to set its context as we looked at uh, a couple of points. And let me just remind us by way of review, five things that we specifically thought about last Lord's Day as the context, the, the foundation upon which this particular verse is founded. First of all, we looked at a word from the Hebrew text, the word musar. It was translated several different ways uh, in the Hebrew text or the Old Testament. and It's, in, it's, it's translated instruction, uh, discipline, chastening, uh, correction. It's a complex word with covenantal meaning. But second, about that word, we looked at that word as the training up of children is primarily an educational process focused upon God. It is 
a correction of a child bent in sin and the ways of his father Adam, but it is a correction of a child resulting in a theocentric, a God-centered education. And I'm talking about a holistic education, not merely a formal academia. The third thing about this word musar is that while the process involves unpleasantries, it is primarily a positive word and not a negative word. So while it's translated discipline and chasten and correction and some of those words that have kind of a negative connotation, we are not to receive it that way or embrace it that way. God puts this out for us in a very positive way, and He wants us to know it is who He chastens are those He loves. And so we are to see that connection. We must accept this as a very good and necessary process to bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. So it's very positive. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. But fourth, the theological basis for God's discipline of His children is grounded in the covenant relationship of God with His people. God disciplines those He particularly loves. It's not a punitive punishment. It's not retribution. It is not justice when He chastens His children. But it is Training up in righteousness. Number five, there is a direct connection between the Musar relationship that God has with His people and a Christian father to His children. As a father Musars his son, so the Lord His people. A Christian father bears the image of His covenant God and as such, He stands in a parallel relationship over his children, chastening and correcting and instructing and providing for them, which are expressions of an interpersonal relationship of covenant love. The Old Testament provides the foundational teaching and the covenantal understanding to a father in the training of his children with Musar. Now with that understanding, we now come back to our text, and we will unpack our text, because it builds upon that, and it explores it, and expands it in the new covenant, in the mission that God has given the church. So this morning, I would like for us to consider the raising up of our children in the way that the Bible here exhorts us in Ephesians 6.4 as one of the most important activities that we as fathers can do for the kingdom of God in our mission in the world. And while it is addressed to fathers, the mothers and wives are a very important part of this. But there's a reason why it's addressed to fathers and not mothers, which we'll come to in a moment. But this is the most important thing that we as parents will do. Changing of the world for Christ begins here. It's sad to hear in days past that a lot of our missionary fathers did not understand this principle. They would abandon their personal raising of their own children in order to evangelize the world. But the long-term change 
in the world. The way you really turn the world upside down for Christ is having your children with you as you go and evangelize the world for Christ. Raising them up in the very culture that you desire for them to continue long after you are gone. The greatest thing we can do for the world is to have our children and to have children and to have lots of children and raise them to love the Lord and to serve Him faithfully. Lots of children. <laughs> And to train them, not just have lots of children, but lots of children, and to train them to love and serve the Lord all the days of their lives, and teach them to do the same. To do that, we have to heed the biblical instruction in this little verse, which is first addressed to fathers. That's very important. The very first thing it says is, and you fathers... In fact, that address in a nutshell is the entire theology of Musar that we looked at last Lord's Day. Fathers. Musar, the covenant relationship and the representative of your household. does not exclude mothers. It does not exclude wives from this process. But it is bearing the responsibility squarely upon the shoulders of the fathers. It's the father's responsibility. He stands as the covenant head of his home. He is responsible for everything that goes on in his household. He's responsible for every one of the sins of his children and of his wife. By the way, I did not say guilty of those sins. He is responsible for them. And like Job, who would then offer sacrifices daily for the sake of his children, for the sake of his family, who may have sinned, and so we as fathers need to confess the sins of our family and our children before the Lord because we are the covenant head and responsible party of our families. So the fathers must be the one that takes the initiative. The fathers set the course. The fathers lead the spiritual way. The fathers direct the way for his children's upbringing. It is the father that provides the leadership to ensure his children are raised for the Lord's work. The instruction to fathers here first begins with a negative instruction. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. That's the negative part. It's a negative command not to provoke the children to wrath. And don't make them unnecessarily angry or frustrated in the process of your training them up. Don't exasperate your children. Don't provoke them. Don't irritate them. Don't frustrate your children. Now, your children may become frustrated with you when you have righteously done what is necessary but fathers do not unnecessarily frustrate them. Don't overload your children with an abundance of commands that they have trouble in their obedience of the preceding context. As the covenant head of your family, you want the child to respond to God favorably. And God, our Father, is not a tyrant, He is not a drill sergeant. 
He is not a cruel dictator when raising his children because God isn't that way with us. Fathers should not be that way with their children because you as the covenant representative want to reveal God the Father in the right way. But there are a multitude of sins in children who grow up with bitterness toward their parents. Several ways that parents can incite anger or bitterness or frustration in their children. A couple of labels here that I'll just go through pretty quickly. There's the perfectionistic dad. A perfectionistic dad is one who is never quite satisfied with the way things go with his children or with his children themselves. His children are not quite ever certain that their father can ever be satisfied with them or what they have done, and it leads to an internal frustration. Or, number two, there's the severe dad. A dad who is too severe, unreasonable exercise of authority to raise our children in mercy and grace. With much mercy is gospel raising. But to raise them in performance-based and works-based is a false gospel raising. You see the contrast. And then number three, there's the control freak dad. A control freak dad takes, every, takes control of every situation and he never allows his children to develop. He's afraid that his children are going to fail. And so he always comes in and he compensates and he does everything. Perhaps moms are somewhat like this with their children. That leads to an underdeveloped child, which leads that child, again, to be frustrated because they did not develop. Don't raise them that way. Or there's the negligent dad, a dad who doesn't take the time to teach his children. That also leads to a frustrated child because they never learn life. Well, dad never taught me that. Oh, I never realized this. He never broached that subject with me. Or there's the angry dad. An angry dad is a harsh man where his children cower and they avoid him. These are just the few characteristics where dads can provoke their children to wrath. And the Bible says, don't do that. Dads, remember, they are children. They are still developing, whether they're 2 or 12 or still 18. A child needs to hear as much encouragement from his father as he does the admonishments. And a child needs to enjoy his father, not merely hear his counsel. I do hope that our children can enjoy our process of bringing them up and enjoy us as we can enjoy our children, even when they fall. A child needs to hear his father's involvement in his life in a very positive way. And so now we turn to the positive commands, which it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but 
bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, how are we to do that? These are the principles that the Scripture sets forth before us, and it's important for us fathers to get. And I want to address three particular principles in those particular words of that positive command. We are, first of all, the first principle is to bring up our children in the Lord. Fathers, bring your children up in the covenant promises of the Lord. Bring them up in the context and in the Lord. The phrase, of the Lord here, we're to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The nurture and admonition of the Lord are, these are qualified of the Lord. These are the Lord's. Qualifies how we are to raise our children. When we bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the qualifying principle is Jesus. It means, fathers, that when we bring up our children, it means that we are to raise up our children in the faith. Generally, I see three ways in which Christian fathers raise their children. Christian fathers raise their children. First of all, some Christian fathers raise their children up in fear. Fear is the governing influence in the father that controls how he thinks about and how he raises his children. He's always in protective mode. That can be very true of mothers as well. It does not say raise up your children in the fear of all the things that happen, of all that you're afraid that will occur. Rather, in the fear of God. In the Lord. So some fathers raise their children up in fear. Second, some fathers raise their children up in presumption. They assume everything's going to turn out okay with their covenant children, so they do very little in the way of proactive, godly training in their children's lives. Oh, when they're young, they might direct their ethical behavior in such a way that is not much different than any other person. But as they grow older, they do little proactive, godly training in their children. And that's presumptuous. This is a lazy, negligent, and truly an unbelieving manner that some Christian fathers have. They don't have a faith vision, but rather are presumptuous with God for their children. But third, some Christian fathers raise them in faith. Both fear and presumptuous raising is faithless. The raising our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord requires faith. Faith provides the fathers a vision for his children and where they're going in their future. A man who has no vision has no faith. See, when I talk about vision, I'm, I'm including this whole idea of faith seeing. Where are we going in the future? That is what I am seeing by faith that we are to walk toward. Because the Bible has revealed this. 
But a man who has no vision has no faith. Faith is a kind of sight. Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham, in the great chapter of faith, was that which was looking forward to a city whose builder and maker was God. Faith provides us a vision of something that we cannot see with our natural eyes. So when you look at your little boy, what kind of man are you seeing him become? What does the Bible say about little boys and little girls and what kind of godly men and godly covenant women that they should be? That's your vision. And when we first look at our little boy, we should first see a man that he will become. And then we act to train that little boy to become that man that God wants him to be. That is faith training. That is in the Lord. The Scripture paints the picture for us. God gives us the picture. Faith sees the picture. Faith studies the picture. Faith looks at the details as well as the whole. And true faith then organizes life around what it sees. Unbelief only sees on the surface and it always sees in the very present. But faith is going to require us to see beyond the present and into the future of what is becoming and so organize our life accordingly now in light of what is to come. That's faith seeing. Remember the ten spies that went in to spy out the land and they saw giants and they saw fortified cities and people that were stronger than they were, and all they could see is an enemy that was overwhelming and strong, and the ten spies already were defeated. And they did not listen to what God says, I will go before you and I will fight for you. They said, the land I'm taking you to is a land fortified, but it is also a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's how God presented it. He said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the land I'm giving you. I promised to Abraham, I delivered you out of Egypt with mighty powers. Now go in and inherit the land. And all the ten spies could see, yeah, we acknowledge that it's got these grapes and this land is a great land. But all they could see is defeat. But Caleb and Joshua saw God's blessing. They saw what God had told them. They saw the land flowing with milk and honey. And they were able to see through the battles and through the problems and through the trials and through the tribulations to see the inheritance that God had promised them. And therefore, they could organize their life and their spirit in such a way that they could then be obedient today in what God has promised for tomorrow. That's faith seeing. That's vision That's biblical vision. A place of peace and prosperity where God can be worshipped in liberty without distraction. That's what they were seeing. Not just a land, but a land of worship. And that's the way it is in raising our children. 
You look at the promises of God. You see something different than you currently behold with your eyes. As I'm looking out among our congregation, I see some children that are not paying attention. Some older children that are drifting off asleep. Some children who've got some weak character going on right now and battles with the enemy. And we should not evaluate everything based upon what our natural eyes are currently, right now, beholding. But taking the Word of God as real and lively and real time as it is now, trusting that this message right now is going to impact their lives and make them become what there should be in the future. That's why I have to preach in faith. You have to organize your life not around the immediate circumstances which often drive you, but you have to act upon what God has promised for the future. You have to act now upon that. And so you live differently than if you literally lived in the present. If you read the headlines today and you see everything that's going on out in the world, and if you fix your attention upon that, we'll have a tendency to raise our children in fear and not in faith. Let me show you the difference. Fear is going to have a tendency to retreat and protect, and guard, and shelter them from it all. You don't even want them to know about what's going on in the world today. Because you're afraid. But fear will never take ground for God. And that's what we're about as Christians. Only faith will engage the culture around us. Only through faith you're going to get that mountain, Caleb. Or you're going to lead the people in, Joshua. But you ten will never see it because you are too afraid. You'll never gain the ground. Your children can't merely inherit a land without going through the battles to defeat the enemies. You're going to have to teach them to trust God and to see the vision that God has for them. You're going to have to equip them to engage and not retreat. They are in a battle. And God has given them the armor for the battle. And if you don't think your children are going to see battle, you're not going to fit them to take the ground for the Lord. Faith sees something in the future. It structures life in the present so that what is future becomes realized in the real present. Just remember the object of your faith in this is not the child, but it is God. Our faith must rest upon the promises of God for our children. And that's the way you want them to raise their children. So a father needs to raise his children up seeing what God is doing in their future. Not where the child is now, but seeing what the child is becoming by the grace of God. And so ordering life around that vision.
Now, raising children up in faith requires two things. First of all, it requires nurturing them in the Lord. And second of all, it requires admonishing them in the Lord. The first way we are to raise up our children in the Lord is to raise them in the nurture of the Lord. And that term nurture is one of those loaded terms. This is the New Testament equivalent of Old Testament Musar. Padea. Musar. Padea. The Greek term here is padeia. And the basic concept behind padeia is, is, is to enculturate the entirety of the child. Enculturate. Like Musar, it involves a, a theocentric education of the whole child. The goal of which, the goal of which is to Christianize society. You want to see how to stop the the looting and the protest? You raise your child up in the Lord. That's how that is overturned. There's direct connection. Winter Jager in his monumental study on this little term, padea, shows that the word padea represented to the ancient Greeks an enormous ideological task. They were concerned with nothing less than shaping the ideal man who would be able to take his place in the ideal culture. That's what's wrapped into the old ancient Greek thought of this term, padea. Further, the point of padea was to bring that ideal culture about. Padea goes far beyond the scope of what we call formal education. In the ancient world, Padea was an all-encompassing and involved nothing less than the enculturation of a future citizen, which would in turn bring about the enculturation of the entire society. That fits really well with go and make disciples of all the nations. Incorporating that mission right into the very covenant promise to you and your children. Musar and Padea are the key ways, fathers, that we are to focus in raising up our children in the Lord and for the Lord. In the ancient world, Padea was all-encompassing and involved nothing less than the enculturation of a future citizen which would then turn about to bring in a whole society. And while it does include the formal education of the children with a God-centered focus, it goes way beyond that. It includes all of life and all of its educational processes. Now, here's an illustration I want to give you this morning. And I want to expound this illustration a bit because I want to apply this illustration as an application that I want the one thing that you fathers are to take away from here. You often remember my illustrations but I'm hoping that you can encapsulate in the illustration the application and the principles that are here talked about. I went to a university. Many of you have gone to state universities. And the reason I keep my children away from those state universities is because I went to the university. 
But let's think about those universities in general. Now, not all universities are state and immoral, secular uh, universities. Some are Christian universities, but let's just talk about the university for a moment. The term university means a whole. It's the same word from which we get the universe, the whole. It's a oneness. And the general meaning from the Latin word from which the term university is derived means a number of persons associated into one body, one society, or one community. It has a universe, one-worldness, okay? A society that has a one mind, a society that has one body, a society that has one spirit, body, soul, and spirit. One. That's the, the university. It's a one world. It is literally a microcosm of the world. That's the university. Modern day universities train students with this one worldness. The university is a little world. In fact, oftentimes universities, and most oftentimes universities, will have their own police departments. Many of them have their own hospitals. Many of them have their own traffic control and even public transportation for their students and faculty. Universities have their gods that they serve and the temples in which to raise up images of their god and to worship their gods. It's a whole little world in itself, and it's very deliberately so. Because that little world is what forms everybody who lives in that little world. A student goes to the university to get an education, and what the student is going to get is more than just mine. He's going to get an entire formation and an enculturation of his entire person in the university. I want you to consider three aspects of a typical university system. These were just things that I kind of came up with in my reflection upon the system itself. But first of all, there is the formal education. Second of all, there is the campus life. And third, there are the formal rites and rituals. All of which play into the formation and the training of the student. Let's think first of all about that formal education. Well, this is what the student thinks he's enrolling and to begin with, is to get a formal education. Well, not all students. Some people, uh, students are actually enrolling into the university to become more a part of the ritual of which will then yield them just a degree. Because with that little piece of paper, they think that they can go then get a particular job. In some cases, that's very true. But they're going there for a formal education. This is what the student desires to learn but the university intends to teach the students much more than just merely an academic focus that the student himself intends. And that's why usually the first two years are just general classes in the university. But in those first two years, those general classes have the worldview that the university wants to teach. Now it's incorporated into the sociological, into the historical, into uh, the, the biological classes that are required. Yes. But then finally the student gets to the field of study. But often in these earlier years, it's the mind of the university that's indoctrinated into the students. In the state university system, those, the mind of that university often is filled with liberalism and agendas. 
which moves from toleration to acceptance to embrace. That happens all in a very short amount of time, but it happens because the entirety of that student is being addressed. The formal education is also where the student learns his field of study, but always with the worldview of the university and never apart from that worldview. This is the place where research papers are are written and academic conferences are being conducted and there is study and there's schedules and there's tests and there's papers to write and books to read, all with a particular curriculum in that formal study. Well, the second part of a university system also includes the rituals and the rites of that particular university. You have student initiation and orientation to the university life as soon as you check in with the office of the registrar. They're going to walk you through what it looks like to be a student at our university. But then there's also at the end of your time, there's going to be graduation. And with graduations, there's caps and gowns and regalia. We're not the only ones that wear a robe. All that's a part of the ritual and the rites of the university. There's there's liturgies going on here. Why? Because there's a formulative process and enculturation that necessarily happens, even quite unaware uh, that that the student is having all of this going on upon him. He just thought he went to study uh, engineering. There's the conferring of degrees as a part of the rituals and rites. There is the giving of honorary doctorate degrees, which, by the way, certainly incorporates the worldview of the university. I've known universities that have retracted honorary doctorate degrees because it no longer conformed with the worldview that that university had when it gave it. So it's all a part of a package There's commencement speeches which are made by someone usually famous and again aligned with the the worldview. Well, those are the rites and the rituals. But then there's the campus life. And don't sell short the campus life. Oh, the campus life is part of the formal training process in which the university understands and which university spends a lot of money. The entire sporting parts of the university, right? All of this comes into play in the formation and the shape of who that person is going to leave that university. We don't just leave college thinking about our engineering and art degrees. We leave college thinking about Auburn University and the Florida Gators and and Alabama and the Roll Tide and, 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 and all of the things that come along with the life. And for a long time after that, we're buying tickets to the football games and we're, we're talking about Go Gators and, and Go Seminoles. And there's this entire formulation that we keep embracing the university life. Virginia Tech, whatever a hoagie is, right? That goes along with it. Purdue. 
I'm looking at a lot of representatives of universities and you know what comes into play because they get you to cheer for their university and, and to espouse their worldview because you're proud to be a gator, a seminole, a, a, a hoagie, a tiger. They spend a lot of money on that sports program. Because it shapes the person. Oh, there's football games, there's the homecoming events, all of the attendant circumstances, there's the band, there's the cheerleaders, there's the away games, right? Then there are the fraternities and the sororities, which become the, the little micro-societies within the society. There's initiation and the hazing week, right, that goes on. Then there are those microcultures of those fraternities and sororities. You have intramural football among the students and ultimate frisbee and other recreational activities that are fostered. There's the way you get around campus. Even a simple way of going to the dining hall is not benign in the university setting. We walk in um, Trinity College in Cambridge. The first time I went over there, I had to go see this dining hall, which was this double hammer beam, timber frame, beautiful structure that dates back into the medieval times. And we're in the dining hall, and I'm looking at the, the, the menu for the students of the week. And on Monday, it gives this formal French cuisine of something paired with this wine, and this wine, and Tuesday, and Wednesday. And I'm thinking, wow, these students have quite a, a palate, and they're, they're, they, they have this whole dining experience. I actually have spoken with a, a Cambridge University grad, and I talked to him about all of this. He goes, yeah. He says, when you're in your field of focus and study, that dining hall experience becomes a really critical part of your campus life. I am so focused in my latter years of my grad work there that you stop and you go and you have this structured meal with all of your fellow students in different fields and disciplines, and we have such a camaraderie of a deep discussion that goes on around the table in the university. It doesn't happen in many other places, and that's one of the things I heard a student say he misses the most are the dining hall experiences. Well, there's those structure times, there's the schedule, there's the evening activities, there's the library study sessions, there's the coffee shops and the late night study groups with your friends. Often on state universities, there are student lobbying. I remember seeing that. Uh, for those who have been on those kind of campuses, there's student lobbying. By the way, the university encourages lobbying and protest. Why? Because they're the ones who's training the guys out there to know how to do that by allowing it in here. And so you see oftentimes what's going on when a student has a cause, he'll, he'll lobby uh, on the campus, and more often than not, everybody's for him. And that's why you see oftentimes the promotion of the things in the world started in the university.
the various hodgepodge of religious groups and cults on the campus. I've never seen so many cults represented except on the campus of the college that I went to. They're everywhere. I had friends who grow up in the Christian faith, and they go to the university, and they're being led away by these cults. One by one, and you're saying, how in the world can you... Because you're so vulnerable in this environment. There's acceptance and even expectation of various behaviors, often immoral, on a secular university campus life. This is part of campus life, and it's all part of that formation. The university life is a way of life, along with its formal academics, with its rituals, and its campus life. It's a one little world. And all these things significantly shape and form the way you think, the way you live, and the worldview that you embrace. And it's all developed within this one little world. It develops the whole person, not just the mind, but the body and the spirit. And this is all wrapped up now in this one little world word that we call pedeia. That the fathers now are commanded to raise up your children in the pedeia of and in the Lord's world. In the Lord's culture. In the Lord's way of doing things. With the Lord's campus life. With the Lord's rituals. With the Lord's formal education. With the Lord's academics. With the Lord's way of thinking. With the Lord's worldview. It's all the entirety of how you are to raise up your children holistically. It's the entire enculturation of your child in the Lord. Fathers, you need to think about your home and your church life here as your personal university for your children. Christian education, this paideia in the midst of a fallen society is the way in which the society around us will be Christianized. Are we going to give our children over to the world's fallen culture, or are we going to so enculturate them that they will influence the world? Those are your only two choices. The Christian education of our children is so closely related to the formation of culture in our society that we cannot neglect this most important aspect of the good works that God has put before us as Christian fathers. The establishment of Christian schooling used in the most broadest fashion necessarily entails the establishment of a Christian culture. And when Paul gave this command to fathers, he saw the end in view. It was not a Christian culture in which the church of Ephesus was living, but he was seeing something beyond, and so he gives the vision to the fathers for their children for the very society in which they were dwelling. And at Heritage, we do have this multi-generational view and approach to the ministry here. And the very first tier of that approach is the Christian padea of our children, fathers. Well, third, there is this other way, and we'll be very brief on it, it is to not only to nurture them up in the Lord, but it is to admonish them in the Lord. And that word admonish is the word nuthesio. It's the word from which you might have heard nuthetic counseling. The word nuthetic means to admonish or to exhort. 
is this idea of ethical and corrective kind of instruction. It assumes that children will need to be corrected and admonished and exhorted. In fact, the Bible actually assumes that we all need that because it says to admonish one another. And that's the very same word here. Bring some correction here. And fathers cannot be negligent in this with their two-year-olds, with their four-year-olds, with their 12-year-olds, with their 16-year-olds, and with their 18-year-olds. This word, euthesia, couples with padeia, and that it includes the entirety, the whole person. And when we consider training up our children in the padeia and euthesia of the Lord, We are talking about a holistic education that is centered on God and intended to bring forth a Christian society to the glory of God. It's one of the chief good works that God has assigned fathers to do. Now here's the closing application. Fathers. Fathers, you're not only to be the booster rockets of your children, getting them out of the gravitational pull of the world and to launch your children in the life that God has for them, but you are also to be the creator of your family's university. And dads, let me encourage you this morning to hit the reset button. This is a time for reboot. Recalibrate. I used to work in a particular field where when I was selling test equipment, that high frequency, particularly microwave test equipment, you needed to recalibrate it every time you pulled the connector off and was going to do a new test. Every time you ran a new test, you had to recalibrate it. This morning is one of those times of recalibration. We come together for covenant renewal, and this is what we need to do, dads. We need to start everything all over again and recalibrate the university of your household. A few things to think about as you do this. I want you to consider the vision you have for your children. I want you to be faith-seeing. What do your children look like in their future? What do you have them to see? What is it that God would have them to be? Number two, begin to foster the culture that you want your children to to become. What does your university look like to develop the child in a positive and encouraging manner? Not one that leads to frustration. Remember, this is a grace-based and not a works or performance-based kind of training. Number three, spend time discipling your children in the ways of godliness. And you're going to have to teach them, admonish them, correct them. See, just as a a, a minister in the church is called a father of the people, he is given the Word of God that he might be able to teach and to rebuke and to correct, and here's the child training word, and to train up in righteousness in the Lord of those people that God has given. That the man of God may be thoroughly furnished with every good work. That's the Scripture. And dads, you need to think about what this is going to look like biblically in discipling your children 
Have you taught them how to repent? Have you taught them how to seek forgiveness? Have you taught them or are you teaching them how to grant forgiveness and why they need to be merciful with others and not critical? What does pride and humility look like and how do we humble ourselves before Almighty God and our neighbor? Disciple your children in the ways of godliness. And number four, consider not merely the biblical teaching, but consider the things you do as a family. If your family is getting spread out, which they tend to do as the children get older and they have other responsibilities and ministries, and consider how to regroup the family for special times for your family university. Consider the special investment time with individual children. What does what this campus life look like in your university, dads? What formative practices can you establish so that when your children leave the home, they can be in a parallel way? Go Gators! <laughs> By word of analogy, not literally, right? Go Christ! Go to the glory of God! Go King Jesus! What formative practices in campus life can you inculturate in them so that when they leave and are launched, they continue to embrace the university labels of Almighty God upon their lives? What formative practices can you establish? What things might you need to get rid of? What are the good and the bad habits that are shaping the way your family is becoming and the way your children are becoming? Number five, pray for your children. Pray for your children also in their own hearing as well as apart from it. Pray for your children. I had a really just sweet time this week when my mom says, son, I want to come over and I want to pray with you. I want you to hear your mom pray for you. And so she came over and she and I had a prayer meeting and we prayed for one another and it was a blessed time. And my mom is, what, 86? Forgive me, mom, if I had that wrong. And I am 55. And you never outgrow that need to pray for one another and to pray for your children. Number six, lead them in the involvement of kingdom ministry. Make sure you yourself, fathers, are involved in the ministry but don't marginalize your children and have your children by your side in the process of ministering. Fathers, you are to bring up your children in the Padea and the Nuthesia of the Lord. Musar, Padea. Fathers, this is the way to change the world. And children, please respond to the process because it's a good thing. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as you deal with us as your children, chastening and disciplining us and shaping us by the formal education You give us in the Word. And with Christ, by the Spirit, showing us who You are and what great things You have done. The natural revelation all around us that as we study the works of God, we become so much more in awe of Your wonders. And yet you also give us the campus life of the community and society in the church to enjoy one another's company and to help each other along with the rituals and the rites of worship. 
And how thankful we are that we are your children in your universe. And we pray that we would teach and guide our children to embrace what you have set before us in a beautiful way. Give us wisdom for many of us are falling way short this morning or have neglected or gotten too busy with other things. And we need to recalibrate this morning. So we ask that you would have mercy upon us, fathers, dear Lord. And we pray that as we begin to reset the direction of the university of our households, that our helpmeet would be fully supportive and our children would embrace this which we delight in and desire for the glory of God. Not just for today, but for the future and for the world around us. And we pray that you would give us the grace to accomplish these things and be successful, that we, your people of the church, might disciple the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.